Welcome to the 348th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Fiona Davis, author of the novel The Lions of Fifth Avenue. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Fiona Davis, author of the new novel, The Lions of Fifth Avenue. The Lions of Fifth Avenue is the Good Morning America book club pick for August. It's also a Library Reads pick for August, a New York Post best summer book, and was included in She Reads Best Historical Fiction of 2020. Some of Davis's previous novels include The Dollhouse, The Address, and The Chelsea Girls. Fiona Davis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, yet, how would you describe the novel? Sure. So it's historical fiction, and all of my books take place in landmark New York City buildings. And the choice for this one was the New York Public Library. And they're all in two timelines. So one timeline is 1913. And that's from the point of view of the wife of the library superintendent, Laura. And she lives in an apartment deep inside the library with her husband and two kids. And this is an apartment that actually existed. And she's surrounded by all this knowledge, but she feels stifled. She wants something more out of life. So she applies to Columbia Journalism School and gets in. And her world is really cracked wide open. And then the other timeline is 1993, and that's from the point of view of Sadie, who's a curator at a rare book collection within the New York Public Library. And she's putting on an exhibit and a a rare book goes stolen, and she's drawn into a series of book thefts that occurred 80 years ago, as well as a tragedy that happened to the superintendent's family back then. And I like to say it's about the, the magic of the written word and the power of women's voices. Great. Well, do you remember the original idea that led you to write The Lions of Fifth Avenue? No doubt. It was doing research about the library. And, and keep in mind, that came from author suge- from reader suggestions. Um, so as I was doing book talks around the country, so many readers said, hey, how about the New York Public Library as a focus? 
And so I started doing research. And when I learned about this seven room apartment that a family lived in for 30 years, I thought, oh, that's just fantastic. And, and the actual superintendent and his family, he had three kids. His daughter was born in the library. And the kids apparently used to play baseball in the reading room using books as baseball as as bases until they got caught. And and there were just so many interesting stories around that. Um, that's really where I thought, okay, I'm going to set it there and create a fictional family because then I can have them jump through hoops. Sure. And so was it the in real life? Was it the superintendent at the time that was living in the library in the in this apartment? Yeah. So he lived there from a little before it opened. It opened in 1911 until 1941. And, um, you know, it was a big job being superintendent of the library. You were in charge of the entire infrastructure. And um, and I was lucky enough to be able to go through the the archives of the superintendent and see, you know, what was the payroll? What were his duties? Here are some letters of complaint that he had to deal with. And it made helped me to kind of humanize the family. And it sounds like that apartment is no longer um, in use in the building. Is that correct? Right. I was able to get a behind the scenes tour, which was lovely. And now it is um, offices and storage. So what what is the history of the New York Public Library building on Fifth Avenue? You mentioned it opened in 1911. Do you know how long it took to build? And were the lion statues there from the very beginning? <laughs> yeah, the lion statues were there from the beginning. And yeah, it took nine years and $9 million to build. When it was built, it was the largest marble structure in America, And when it opened, it had 1 million books and there were 50,000 visitors the very first day. It was a big hit from the start. And the lions out front um, are known as Patience and Fortitude. And they were named by Mayor LaGuardia um, after Depression era values and virtues that got New York City through the Depression. And they're very beloved by New Yorkers. They are. And I'm curious, do you remember the first time that you personally saw the New York Library building and the, and the statues of the lions? Oh, that's such a good question. It was probably when I first came to New York in my 20s and was doing some research for a play that I was in. I was an actress when I first came. And so it was probably doing research um, for a play, actually. And so it's interesting that uh, you came to New York City to to be an actress, and now you're writing these stories that really um, are part of the city in terms of the the architecture and these iconic buildings. Do you have any interesting stories about coming to New York, and you know, as someone who didn't grow up there? Oh, you know, it was it was just a wonderful experience when I first came to New York. I, I went to acting school and then fell in with a group of friends who we, we formed a theater company and put on uh, a number of shows a year. One of our shows went from off, off Broadway to Broadway and was nominated for a Tony. It was just a really wonderful time to be in the city. And, and it was just very vibrant and lots of musicians and directors and actors and writers. And it was just a fun way to, you know, start life. I I seem to change careers every decade or so. Um, After that, I went to Columbia Journalism School and then kind of started off on this path. So what are your earliest memories of reading and books? You know, my family is a big family of readers and we traveled, we we moved around a lot. And um, the constant in whatever town we were in was the library. We would jump in the car and go to the library once a week and get as many books as we could. 
and my brother would head to the train section and I'd head over to horses. And, um, and so that we always read, you know, my parents were always reading and, and that helped so much. And when I finally decided to become a writer, um, because I'd read, I'd read enough to really start diving in. Great. And what, what was your path to writing and publishing your first novel? You mentioned earlier coming to New York in your 20s and, and being an actress. And, and what led you to, to writing your first novel? Yeah, so I, like I said, I went to Columbia Journalism School. And that's where I really learned to create a story and shape a story and, and work with an editor and, and collaborate on and creating the best piece that you can, whether it's nonfiction or fiction. And then I was a, a, a journalist for a while. I did um, pieces on health and fitness and the arts. And then there was a story idea um, surrounded around the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which is this famous women's hotel that's now a condo. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to interview people about how that building has changed over time? Um, but the people who live there who are the older generation are very private. And I just couldn't get access. But I couldn't drop it. And so I just started thinking, well, maybe I'll write a book about it because then, you know, you can make things up, but base it in the facts and play around with a story and play around with the characters. And that's where The Dollhouse, my first book came from. And it was really nicely received, which was just a a joy because as a debut author, that's never guaranteed. And I was off on a whole new career path. (laughs) Do you remember the first time you saw your first novel on a bookstore shelf? What did that feel like? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I showed up at my local bookstore here and, and kind of wandered over. And it, it's it's an amazing feeling. And with each book, it never it never gets old. I was going to head out in a little bit. The book just came out yesterday. And I was going to head out and stop by my local booksellers and say hello today. And I'm so excited because it's these independent booksellers who really support authors and, and launch a book and get it out. And it's nice to do whatever we can to support them. Sure. Well, I, I'm sure that, you know, given all of your research about historical New York for your novels um, and the fact that you, you know, live in New York, I'm sure that you're kind of aware of, of the history that's always present in the city. I'm curious what your thoughts are, because obviously the city is um, uh, suffering through this pandemic. And I'm just, I'm just wondering about what your thoughts are in terms of uh, New York kind of on the rise um, in the years ahead. And one thing I would add, I don't know if you saw the news in the last 24 or 48 hours that Facebook is leasing a huge building in New York. So obviously they're placing bets on, on the rise of the city after this tragedy of the pandemic. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer.
If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Oh, no, I have not seen that news. That's fascinating. You know, New York has been through so much, right? There was the, the Spanish flu of 1918 to 19. There was 9-11. Um, you know, the city has, is so resilient and even we got hit really hard, really early with the, with the virus and everybody, you know, pulled together and did their best. And, and these days you walk around and, and the anxiety level is, is just a little lower because people are wearing masks and being careful and social distancing, which is not easy in a dense city, but people are doing it and we're keeping the, the numbers low. And it, it just speaks so much about, you know, who, who New York citizens are and, and the way they, they band together in an emergency and in a situation like this in a way that is just remarkable. And I'm, I'm just so proud of this city and, and proud to be here. And even the lions, I don't know if you've seen, but the, the lions are wearing masks. They're four feet wide and enormous. <laughs> the lions are masked. So everybody's being safe. <laughs> That's great. I had not seen that. That's great to know. Um, do you have a list of New York City iconic buildings for future novels? Uh, yeah, you know, I try not to think too far ahead, but just wandering around, you're always seeing so many buildings um, that are, you know, have, have a great history and I'm sure have all these hidden stories tucked beneath them and ghosts that wander the halls. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I joke around that by the, the 30th book, I'll be doing the gas station on the corner of 11th Avenue. Um, but, but I think there's more than enough buildings to go around. Yes. Well, well, given your success with your novels, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are working on their own stories or novels? I would say don't feel like you have to have a book out by the time you're 30 or 40 or even 50. You know, I, I think it's better to go out and live your life and have experiences so that you have something to put on the page because part of it is really putting your heart out there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think go out and live life and then figure out what story really compels you because whatever it is, you have to sit with it for a long time and go over draft after draft. So it has to be something that you're passionate about and that moves you. And, and what is your, your writing process, process for your novels? Do you outline or plot them extensively before you start writing? I do. Um, because there's two timelines and an element of mystery that really drives the story forward, um, I, I have to figure it out beforehand. And so I figure out the characters and then figure out their each of their stories and, and plot them out so that I know in each chapter what has to happen. Things do change, no question. And when I kind of intertwine the two timelines, things always do change. And there are days that I just want to go and eat a big chunk of cheese because it's too painful. Um, but, you know, it's just a matter of trying to work them together and, and 
taking a, a little distance from it at times so I can come back and look at it with fresh eyes. But I do plan out pretty extensively. I know the plot twists. I know what the big reveal will be. And I work towards that. That's great. Well, I know you've just had The Lions of Fifth Avenue published, but have you started working on another novel yet? I have. I've started a book set at this gem of a building called The Frick here in New York. And it's on Fifth Avenue. It was owned by Henry Clay Frick. And um, and I'm just kind of seeing what's going to happen there. It, it was a residence and then a museum, which I, again, I like that dual, you know, role of the building. And we'll see where it goes. That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, you know, I've read a lot of fiction. So um, there's a book called The Daughters of Foxcote Manor by Eve Chase, which I just adored. It's a crumbling English manor house and two generations of mothers and daughters and secrets. It's everything I love in a book and beautifully written. Um, There's a book coming out um, soon called The Exiles by Christina Baker Klein. And that's a wonderful book about Australia, um, historical fiction, which is kind of an unusual take on it. And then there's a book coming out September 1st by an author named Asha Lemmy, L-E-M-M-I-E. And it's called 50 Words for Rain. And it's World War II, post-World War II Japan, from the point of view of a girl who is half Black and half Japanese. And again, just a really unique story, beautifully told. So where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, it's FionaDavis.net. And then I'm on Facebook as Fiona Davis Author and on Instagram and Twitter as Fiona J. Davis. And I'm, I'm pretty active there and there's a lot going on and a lot of research and inspiration that I, I like to post around the story. So I hope people will join me there. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Fiona Davis, author of the new novel, The Lions of Fifth Avenue. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Fiona, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Great. Now listen to a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Lions of Fifth Avenue by Fiona Davis, narrated by Aaron Bennett and Lisa Flanagan, available from Penguin Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. Sadie Donovan leaned against the stone lion named Patience and waited for the line of tourists entering the library to subside. The March sun was bright, offering a tease of warmth, but the intermittent gusts of wind made it clear that a temperamental spring was still firmly in charge. The chilly air irritated her, as did the crowd storming the building. They came in wave after wave, first taking photos of the two marble lions that flanked the steps. The one across the way was called Fortitude, the names conferred in the 1930s by Mayor LaGuardia as a reflection on Depression-era virtues. Then around the revolving door that deposited them in the foyer like widgets in an assembly line. From there, they'd wander aimlessly, running their greasy hands over the polished walls and jamming up in the entrance to the reading room on the top floor, as they stared up at the painted ceiling, fish mouths agape. She almost wished the architects hadn't put so much fuss behind their design for the building. This ought to be a place for scholars, where the maps and books and artifacts took precedence, not the scrollwork or chandeliers. If it were up to her, she'd allow the gawkers limited access, say 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. every other Wednesday. 
If the tourists wanted a museum, they could go to the Met uptown and be pests there. Not on her turf. Finally, the crowd eased and she headed inside. Maneuvering up the stairs to the northeast corner of the library's top floor, through the heavy wooden door marked Berg Collection. While the reading room down the hall offered a vast expanse of desks and chairs under rows of massive windows, the Berg had no windows and only a couple of large tables. Yet it offered its own quiet sense of majesty, with fluted Corinthian columns flanking Austrian oak panels. Glass cabinets showed off valuable editions and manuscripts by Thackeray, Dickens, and Whitman, generously donated by the brothers Henry and Albert Berg back in the 40s. The room felt intimate, safe. As she walked into the back office space, her colleague Claude looked up from his desk. Any sign? she asked. No. His phone rang and he turned away. Sadie settled in placing her purse in the drawer of her desk. On the other side of the room, a dozen inter-office envelopes sat piled on their boss's desk. Sadie supposed she might as well start her day going through them, so the administration of running the Berg collection wouldn't fall behind. Yesterday, Marlene Jenkinson, the Berg's curator and Sadie's mentor, hadn't shown up for work as expected from the week-long trip to New England she'd taken with her husband. When there was no sign of her early that afternoon, Sadie and Claude had approached the director of the library, Dr. Hooper, and been told to carry on with their work. He'd fill them in soon. Sadie had continued working on the master sheet of the Berg Collection's highlights for an upcoming exhibit, entitled Evergreen, while Claude had been one room over in the exhibit hall, going over the floor plan with the carpenters. It wasn't like Marlene to extend her trip and not tell them, to leave them in the lurch like this. The exhibit was an opportunity for the Berg to shine. It would attract international attention, and they'd all been working doggedly ever since it was announced, spending weekends down in the stacks, going through the rare books and taking inventory. Over the past four years, Marlene had proved a kind and generous advisor and friend to Sadie. Surely if something were wrong, Marlene would have reached out and let her know. The mystery around her absence, followed by Dr. Hooper's curt dismissal, worried Sadie. She considered airing her concerns out loud to Claude after he hung up the phone, but thought better of it. They'd been circling each other with caution the past couple of months, now that their relationship, or whatever it was called, was over. And she didn't want to show any vulnerability in front of him. Sadie had always preferred books to people. In high school, she'd eaten her lunch in the library to avoid the confusing maze of social rules in the cafeteria. She'd befriended one of the librarians who Sadie's senior year urged her to get a degree in library sciences at Rutgers, where Sadie aced every class. After eight years working at the university's library, she landed a job at the New York Public Library and moved into an apartment in New York's Murray Hill neighborhood, not far from the townhouse where she'd been raised. It was perfect, with soaring ceilings, a fireplace, and a narrow stairway that led to a generous sleeping loft. The first night, she hugged herself with happiness, hardly believing that this was her life. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.